invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 as we continue uh, working our way through the text this morning. I just want to read you uh, this verse that we're going to be dwelling on. We're going to be looking at all of it, uh, verses 13 to 24. Uh, but one, one verse in particular that comes at the end helps us to understand really the thrust of what Paul is trying to say to these elders at uh, Ephesus, at Miletus, who have come, these elders who have come from Ephesus to meet with him at, uh, at Miletus. And that's, that's verse 24 that we're going to be looking at. So I invite you just to uh, find your way in Acts chapter 20 to verse 24. I'm just going to read this verse uh, one more time, and then we will pray. We'll ask the Lord to help us, and then we will, we will begin to dig in to what exactly it is that Paul is saying to these guys, and by extension, what he's saying to each one of us this morning. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just place this word before us this morning in the hope, in the prayer, and the confident expectation that by your spirit you will speak to each and every heart, Lord, that you will minister to us this morning. Father, we pray that you would illuminate the passage before us in light of our present struggles and the difficulties that we are having, that you would call us on to greater faithfulness. Lord, this morning as we consider the testimony of Paul to these Ephesian elders, Lord, let this testimony take such root in our heart that when we say our final goodbye to each other in this life, we may look back without regret, without sorrow, disappointment, knowing that we ran the course that you set before us. Now we finished our ministry to your glory and to the praise of your son. We ask, Lord, that you would burnish this truth on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're taking a look at this particular passage. And I think that it's important for us, especially given current circumstances, As you look at the media accounts of the pandemic, as you hear the daily reports every day in terms of the total number of individuals who have gotten sick, number of individuals who have died, this number just keeps getting larger and larger and larger. Uh, Of course, there's the daily count, but that daily count is always overshadowed by the overall count going back all the way to January of last year in terms of the numbers of individuals who've been infected and those who have passed away. It seems apparent to me that uh, we are a society without hope. Not that there isn't a vaccine that is coming, not that there isn't a solution on the horizon to the sickness of COVID-19, but it is presented in such a way as the only danger, the only threat that any of us could possibly face is the threat of getting sick and potentially dying. And you hear this rephrased in multiple ways, You know, you have different suggestions that are made that the best thing, the most important thing that any of us could do ultimately is to stay home, wear our masks, and not have any contact with anyone else in any kind of a physical sense because the most important thing is for them to stay alive physically 
And as Christians, this is a testimony that we can just never accept. Physical life, apart from spiritual life, is no life at all. And physical life, apart from knowing Jesus Christ, will still end in death. There is no final solution in the vaccine. There is no final solution uh, to any of the medical treatments that are being proposed. And even at this point, withholding ourselves from one another doesn't actually change the course of any single soul. It doesn't prevent us from experiencing the inevitable. It does not keep us from going to the grave. And by withholding ourselves physically from each other, we are handicapping our ability to bless each other with the gospel. What would Paul say to all of this? Well, he just made the statement here in verse 24 that he doesn't count his life as precious. It's not of any value to him. He, he only has one goal, and that is to finish his race. He, he uses the expression to finish his course and to complete, to bring to a completion the ministry that he has received from Jesus Christ. And as we look at this passage this morning, what I want you to take away, what I pray that you will see in the word by God's Holy Spirit is that there is a greater value and a greater joy running for Christ even if doing so ends your life. The title of my message this morning is to stay the course rather than staying alive. We pick it up here in Acts chapter 20. And uh, what I want you to know is when he says in verse 24, he says, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious as myself if only I may finish my course, if, I, if only I may finish the race that is before me. This isn't the first time that, th- this is the first time that Paul uses this expression, but it's not going to be the last time. We hear this same sort of sentiment expressed in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. Don't flip there, just listen. Paul has come into imprisonment. It is the second imprisonment of his life. He was imprisoned the first time in Rome, and he's imprisoned a second time. And this time, he sensed that the end is near. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have the same expectation that he's going to be released from prison on this second imprisonment. And so he writes a letter to Timothy. Uh, this is sometime around A.D. 63, A.D. 64. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he makes this statement to Timothy. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul is talking about it in terms of it being the end. He's going to ask Timothy to make haste to come and see him. He's going to say, Timothy, when you come, hurry, get here as fast as you can. Bring my coat. He's obviously cold. And he's going to ask for him to bring some parchments. But before he says all that, he says, I know that the end is near. My departure has arrived. And he makes this statement. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, he made that statement at the end. And it wasn't the first time he'd made that statement. He'd made that same statement eight years before, here around AD 56, talking to these elders from Ephesus as he encountered them in Miletus. Same sort of statement, 
I don't count my life as precious or of any value. He says, I want to finish my race. I want to finish the course that I have. What an incredibly beautiful thing that as Paul is in the midst of the battle, as he's in the midst of the struggle, he can say the same thing that he was able to say at the end as he looked back in retrospect upon all of the different struggles of his life over all of the different ups and downs, the upheavals, the trials and the tribulations. He is able to say at the end what it was he was saying at the midpoint. He is all throughout striving to be faithful to Jesus Christ. That's what he says here in chapter 20, verse 24. I don't account my life as precious if only. This is the only thing he has. This is the purpose that he's running after. This is the goal for which he is living. He wants to finish his course. Now, in this particular expression, he is alluding to a metaphor of a runner running. They have Olympic Games in this day and age, just like they have Olympic Games today. In the first century, they had athletes that would compete. They had runners that would run around a track. They did all of the same things back in the first century as what you and I see today. And Paul, considering himself, comparing himself to a runner, understood that following after Jesus Christ was not at all dissimilar than running in a race. You throw all of yourself into it. You charge hard. You condition yourself. You work every day to get better at it. You are constantly running in order to learn how to run faster, in order to compete with those around you in order that you might win the prize. That's the analogy that Paul uses. He uses it several times in his various letters to the churches, and he uses it here in his final farewell to the Ephesian elders. Now, we need to draw close, and we need to hear this this morning. All of us, at the end of our lives, when we come to the end, we will say our final farewell to our children to our loved ones, our friends. And all of us are going to be answering this question at some point in time. What has been the point of it all? What has been the beauty or the goodness of my life? What has been the contribution that I have made? What has been the truth of who I am? And that's what Paul is touching on here when he says goodbye to the elders of Ephesus in Miletus. Now, verses 13 to 16 give us a little bit of a travel log. He is sailing, and he sails past Ephesus. Luke makes the comment that the reason for this is because in verse 16, he had decided that not to, not to land in Ephesus because he was hoping not to have to spend time in Asia for the reason being, this is the reason that Luke gives, he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if at all possible, on the day of Pentecost. He's trying to gather with the saints in Jerusalem. He's trying to get there uh, in time to spend a particular holiday with them, the holiday of Pentecost with the church in Jerusalem. You'll recall all the way back in Acts chapter 2, that was a rather momentous event. Uh, and of course, Paul wasn't saved at the, at the days of Pentecost right after Christ was resurrected. And so, of course, he's wanting to get there with that church in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost because now he has received the Holy Spirit. He wants to get there. He wants to have this celebration with them. And as a result, he is sailing along the western seaboard of the Mediterranean Sea. He's sailing south and he's, 
He's just hopping and skipping and jumping down the the coastline of Asia, and he determines he's not going to land in Ephesus, even though he has planted a church there, even though he's got elders that are there. He determines he's not going to land there because he's hurrying to get to Jerusalem. He sails past Ephesus, and he lands at Miletus, a city that's about 20 miles south of Ephesus. And in the journey sailing past Ephesus... He determined, as, as he'd already sailed past, that this was the wrong decision, that he needed to call those guys from Ephesus to come and visit him. And so even though he could have put in at Ephesus and been efficient with his time, he determines that there is something more important that he needs to communicate to the elders at Ephesus. Even though he initially determined to sail past it, it is worth the time for him to stop in Miletus, a city that's about 20 miles south, to send one of his young men the 20-mile journey back to Ephesus, round up all of the elders, all the pastors at Ephesus, get them all ready to go and bring them south 20 miles to meet him in Miletus. So you figure a 20-mile journey, that's at least a day's journey. There's another day to get everybody ready to go and then another day to bring them all south to Miletus. You're talking about a three-day interruption to Paul's travel plans. He's hurrying to get to Jerusalem, but apparently what he wants to say to them is so important that he is prepared to possibly miss this encounter in Jerusalem if it, if it will allow him to say what he wants to say. And so he begins this speech. The elders meet him in Miletus, and he begins in verse 18. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. This is his final goodbye. This is his final farewell. At the end of the speech, he's going to say, I know now that I'm not going to see any of you ever again. And so with that in mind, we approach these opening words. These are the things that are weighing on his heart. He says, you know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. That's the first thing. He says, you know, in all of those circumstances, how I conducted myself. Number two, he says, you know how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. He says, number one, you know how I lived in every kind of circumstance. Number two, you know, I taught you everything. I gave you the whole counsel of God's word. I shared with you, and I didn't hold back from sharing with you anything that was profitable to you. And then number three, he says, I testified both to Jews and to Greeks or or Gentiles this truth, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's building, it's building. This is it. This is what his life has been about. Number one, you know that it was hard. I went through all kinds of ups and downs. You know that I was persecuted. The Jews made all kinds of plots against me. They were attacking me, but I kept on. Number two, I told you everything from Scripture. I didn't hold back. I didn't candy coat it. I didn't cover it over with sugar. I didn't try to make it more palatable. I gave you everything that was profitable that you needed to hear from God's Word. And it all builds towards this. Number three, I told everyone, everyone, that they needed to repent 
toward God that has changed their way of life. Rather than running away from God, they need to turn back to God. And they could be forgiven of their sins by placing their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ. Then he makes this incredible statement, verse 22. Behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, in verse 24, he's going to say, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I can finish my course. What he is saying, and I invite you just to consider this for yourselves, what he is saying is more important than living long and retiring and settling down to spend his sunset years playing shuffleboard or um, this new, it's kind of like ping pong, I forget what it's called now. It's the new one down at Riverside Park. They've got tennis courts and they've got pickleball, pickleball. That's the word I'm looking for. Paul is saying there are things in life that are more precious than saving up a bunch of money, getting a pension, getting a good government job, or getting a good education so you can get a good private sector job and retiring with a pension. There are things more important in life than sailing off into those so-called golden sunset years and playing pickleball and golf or shuffleboard or collecting stamps or whatever it is that people do with those final years of their life. He says there's something more important than that, and what he says is more important and more precious than that is staying the core and staying faithful to Jesus Christ, finishing the ministry that he gives you, the ministry that you receive from him. That's what he's saying. What I want you to do is I want you to see that this passion for Jesus Christ, it, it brings certain realities into Paul's life which are uncomfortable. But as he lives in faithfulness to Jesus, those uncomfortable realities demonstrate not only to Paul, but to all those who see Paul, who hear him preaching the word, who observe his ministry, that what he is testifying to is true and that the beauty and the goodness and the truth of Paul's life is that he holds something far more precious and far more greater to himself than his own life, Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention to a couple of these things. What, what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus Christ, to hold him as the greatest treasure of your life? What is the essence of staying the course rather than just trying to stay alive? The first thing is to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, to stay the course rather than just trying to stay alive, means that you are mastered by a person and a power that is not your own. Jesus, uh, Paul makes this statement in verse 24. He says, um, I don't account my life. Sorry, no, going back to verse 22. He says, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. He is going to Jerusalem. And later on in the speech, he makes it very clear that he knows bad things are going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. But he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, even though bad things are going to happen there. He makes this statement constrained or bound by the Holy Spirit. Paul has to go to Jerusalem. Paul can't 
not go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit has a hold on Paul and is driving him there. And so as Paul is yielding and surrendering to the Holy Spirit, he finds himself being led by God who is indwelling him to go where he knows pain and hardship waits for him. None of us goes to the hard place out of our own choice. We all want to do those things in life that make us happy. We all want to maximize our pleasure. That is our natural inclination. And what Paul is saying here is, I'm going somewhere where I know there will not be pleasure. I am going somewhere where there will not be immediate happiness or gratification. And the reason for that is because he was deriving his joy from something greater than his earthly circumstances. And he was being driven somewhere that would bring him eternal joy by a person and a power not his own, to be faithful, to stay the course rather than merely just staying alive will require all of us to be mastered, to be subdued, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You know, we often struggle with this. We don't necessarily experience the Holy Spirit. When you go out to buy an ice cream cone, whatever your favorite flavor of ice cream is, you take a bite of it, you know that the taste on your tongue is the taste of ice cream. You can experience it. You know you're holding it in your hand. You, you can have all of the different sensations that go along with that. But when we talk as Christians about being mastered and subdued by the Holy Spirit, when we talk about walking with the Holy Spirit, this is sometimes so abstract and so, so far removed from a tangible sort of practical way for us to hold on to it that we sometimes wonder whether or not we actually have the Holy Spirit. We wonder whether or not uh, we are being mastered and subdued by the Holy Spirit. In my own experience growing up in Texas, one of the expressions that was quite common in churches in the South to describe the salvation experience as accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, say when you were little, like four or five years old, and then accepting him as your Lord when you grew older. We must always take our experiences and even the things we're told about our relationship with God, and we have to put them before the Scripture. A Scripture helps us to understand our experience of the Lord. We may or may not feel particular emotions. We may or may not have particular experiences. But what we do experience can be flawed by a flawed perception. And it can, because of our flawed perception, it can lead to an incorrect understanding, an incorrect interpretation of what we experience. Which means we need to, as we think about our walking with the Holy Spirit, we need to subject our experience of the Holy Spirit to what the Scripture says is true, not what we think ought to be true or even what we would like to experience. Here is the reality of being subdued by the Holy Spirit. Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says that Jesus is accursed. And no one can ever say Jesus is Lord unless he is speaking in the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I acknowledge and we confess certain things with our lips, with our mouth, with our words. 
if we're to say something that is sincere and true, then we're expressing our heart. It requires an action on our part. But what Paul says here is that no one, in a sincere way, no one speaking truly can ever confess or acknowledge Jesus Christ as being the Lord of their lives unless the Holy Spirit is mastering them, unless the Holy Spirit is subduing them and working in them to continue to mold them and shape them to being more and more like Jesus. It starts off with an acknowledgement that you're not in control anymore. It starts off with a yielding to Jesus as the Lord of your life. At first, that might seem like a relatively simple thing to do, but it will lead to greater and greater conflict, greater and greater temptation to resist yielding to Jesus as Lord, a a greater and greater temptation to resist yielding to the Holy Spirit. And yet here, what we see in the life of Paul is that a man who was truly passionate about proclaiming Jesus and running and finishing his course. He knew that in order to do that, he had to go where the Spirit took him, regardless of where the Spirit was taking him. He had to go with the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing I want you to see this morning is that the essence of staying faithful, the essence of staying the course rather than staying alive, means submitting to and being mastered by the Holy Spirit. The second thing it means is that you, in faith, have to learn to be content not knowing what tomorrow might bring. He says here in verse 22, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Not knowing what will happen to me there. As we are running this race with Jesus Christ, every cross-country runner will tell you that the race course will take dips and turns, that oftentimes it'll go around bends, around trees, it'll go up and over hills, and it will disappear over the top of the hill. As you're running, you can't always see exactly where the race course is taking you. But you are called, as you are following after Jesus Christ and being submitted to the Holy Spirit, to still run that race race course, wherever it might go. We see this in the life of Abraham. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 says that Abraham went out. You recall in Genesis, he was called by God to leave his home country and go to a land that God would show him. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 in the the hall of fame of faith says that Abraham went out in faith, not knowing where he was going. If we're going to surrender to Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives, it means we understand our experience of him and our experience of the Holy Spirit through what he says in his word. It also means that as we walk with him, as we obey him, we are going to go where he leads us. And that means we're going to go places that we don't know what lays in store for us. We're going to go where he takes us and he's not going to tell us everything that is out there. And that should be okay. That should be more than okay, not knowing what lays ahead, but knowing that we go with him. 
In Matthew chapter 28, the final instructions to the disciples, he says to them, Go and make other disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And he gives them this amazing promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, he says, I want you to go and make disciples of the whole world. Okay, that's real easy in Acts chapter, uh, sorry, in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus is just resurrected. They're sitting there on the mountain. He's about to ascend up into heaven. Before there was ever any idea of Superman or people flying through the air, before any of that kind of stuff that we know today that's been popularized by movies and comic books, before any of that, you have Jesus, the first Superman, flying up into the sky. They see that. He's told them, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, and your job, your calling is to go and to make disciples, and then he flies up into the sky. You have to imagine that they are excited, that they are ready to go proclaim this good news. And yet they have no idea what's about to happen. You see, Acts chapter 1 and 2 is going to be followed by chapter 3. Chapter 2, they're preaching at Pentecost and people get saved and it's wonderful. And then in chapter 3, persecution comes. And then you say, oh, okay, but when did the persecution end? Well, we're here in chapter 20 and it ain't over yet. We're going to go to chapter 28 of Acts to the very end of the book. And it's going to end with Paul in prison. And then we're going to go throughout all of church history and even to this very day where churches are clamoring to get back to worship. And the public is saying that we are a bunch of fools for even desiring such a thing. The Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms put out a press release on Friday. They have filed suit in British Columbia challenging the health orders by Dr. Bonnie Henry. A number of news outlets reported on this, CTV News, CBC, Global, uh, a few others. And I pulled these up on social media. I was curious to see what the comments were, what the feedback was. I looked at Twitter. I also looked at Facebook. You would probably not be surprised to read just how many hundreds upon hundreds of individuals here in British Columbia who are willing to comment on these things believe that we are a bunch of kooks, that we're a bunch of crazy people because we want to worship God, because we want to gather in obedience to his command and lift high our voices praising his name as he has commanded us to do so for his glory and for our good. They say we're a bunch of lunatics. Now, if you had asked me at the start of 2020 if that was what we were going to be facing headed into 2020, I would have said, no, that's probably, you know, that kind of mockery, that kind of uh, just broad-faced ridicule and scorn and contempt for our desire to worship, that, that's probably five or ten years down the road, such broad public denunciations of us. Oh, how wrong I would have been. It's here, it's now, it's today. But my heart, if I'm walking with Jesus, if my goal is to worship the Lord of lords and the King of kings and to make his name known and to praise him and glorify him, whether I'm at the start of 2020 or I'm in January of 2021, whether I know what's coming or not, the goal doesn't change. And the goal is not to stay alive. The goal is to stay on course. Let me say that again. The goal is not to stay alive. The goal is to stay on course. 
And so as the world is saying, no, 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 your goal is to stay alive because this is all you have, the church's response needs to be, we are running after Jesus because this life is nothing at all. Jesus is all that we have ever had. He is all we will ever need. And he is more than enough for all of eternity. That's what we are called to do. So whether our course goes high or low, and we never know where it goes, we should still be able to joyfully chase after Jesus, as Paul says, not knowing what's going to happen to us there. The third thing that it means to follow after Jesus. The third thing that is going to be worked out in our lives through this Holy Spirit is we will have courage not to stop running, especially knowing that the course before us will lead through suffering. Paul makes this statement, I don't know what's going to happen there, except that, verse 23, the Holy Spirit tells me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he's like, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to finish my race. I'm going to finish the course. I'm bound and I'm constrained and I'm being mastered and subdued by the Holy Spirit to do these things. I don't really know what it's going to look like, but I'm pretty sure it's bad. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm going to have some persecution and some torment and some, some scorn and ridicule whenever I get to where the Lord is taking me. This isn't new for Paul, and it really shouldn't be new for us. All throughout his ministry in the book of Acts, he's been saying this to the churches that he's planted. All the way back in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, he makes the statement, and he's made the statement to every church he's ever planted or established. He says it is through, quote, many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's a promise. We are going to heaven. We are going to see the Lord, but we're going through incredible heartache and tribulation before we get there. So if you were thinking we could live out this happy Canadian dream, if you were thinking we could sail off into those golden sunset years of retirement and that there would be no difficulty and no, no real hardship or persecution, that we could live a so-called godly life without being pressured by the world, then you just weren't reading the word of God correctly or you were not being constrained by the Holy Spirit to go where true Christians have to go as they follow Jesus Christ. You should reflect upon your commitment to the Lord if you're thinking and expecting that your life is easy. You should reflect upon whether or not you are a real Christian or you should reflect upon whether or not you're really submitting to the Holy Spirit. Either way, following Jesus Christ means going bound by the Holy Spirit to a place with uncertainty over what's going to happen there, yet confident expectation that it's probably going to be bad. He says, imprisonment and afflictions await me. And he makes a statement in Acts 14, 22, many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He makes it even more clear and more explicit, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So many times, particularly at Father's Day, I know I've gotten the coffee mug, Jeremiah 29, 11, you get this coffee mug, and there's this passage on it, Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to bless you and prosper you and not to harm you. And we, we get those coffee mugs, and we're like, yay. That's what God wants for my life, just uninterrupted bliss and happiness. 
And yet, that particular verse comes in a passage in which Israel is not home in Israel. They've been dragged away to Babylon. That particular promise comes as God is saying to them, stop complaining about the fact that you're in exile in Babylon. Go ahead and build houses and settle down and have kids because you're going to be there in exile a long time. We claim that promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, believing that that's what God wants. Our 21st century Western American Canadian prosperity gospel tells us that what God's deepest desire is, is for us just to have all the wealth and all the health and all the material blessings that consumeristic, capitalistic society can provide for us. Paul is saying the promise that we should be claiming is not health and wealth, the promise that we are really given in the gospel comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, in which he says all, not some of the people, he makes it very clear, all, everyone, all of you listening at home, all of you gathered, everyone who desires, if this is your desire, to live a godly life, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you are not experiencing persecution, it comes back to what I've already said. Are you walking with the Lord? Are you submitting to the Holy Spirit? Are you being faithful to be constrained and bound by where God is actually trying to take you? If so, you will know, you almost certainly should have known by now, certain persecution. It should have happened. That's a promise. We love to grab those Jeremiah 29, 11 coffee cups for our dads on Father's Day. What I think we probably ought to do for this Father's Day is get a bunch of coffee cups made up with 2 Timothy 3.12. Hey, Dad, I love you. Happy Father's Day. You're going to suffer. Have a cup of coffee. That's how it should be. You wake up. You, you get up in the morning. You're going to start your day. You get your Bible out to have your quiet time, and you get your favorite coffee mug. You will suffer today. Read your word, drink your coffee, it'd be great. Matthew 10, 25, Jesus assures us of this himself in the gospel. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more so will they malign those of his household? You know, you'd think it would be real hard, church, to ridicule and mock a guy who is healing the masses, who's casting out demons, who's making food appear literally out of thin air, taking a couple of loaves and fishes and feeding 5,000, 10,000 people with it. You'd think it'd be hard to call such a man Satan, but they did. They did. How many 5,000s of people have I fed from a single slice uh, of Wonder Bread. Not once has that ever happened in my life. They were able to still find a way to call Jesus Satan, and he could do all of these miracles. I can do none of these miracles. Do you think they're going to hesitate to call me something far worse if they didn't hesitate to call him Satan? Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Being mastered and subdued by the Holy Spirit, staying the course rather than staying alive, will involve a supernatural courage that is given to us by the Holy Spirit when we are able to be content 
not only with uncertainty about tomorrow, but also content with the certainty that some of your tomorrows are going to hurt. You're going to hurt. It's going to happen. And yet Jesus is worth it. I'm calling on the men to have courage. I I just talked about getting these coffee cups at Father's Day that says, you know, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution, will suffer, will be persecuted. Um, I'm not trying to overlook the ladies here today. Ladies, you are also called to courage. The men, absolutely, but also the ladies. Proverbs uh, 31, 25 The Proverbs 31 woman, one of the descriptions of her strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Well, the Lord has just said that the time to come is going to bring pain. And yet, a Proverbs 31 woman is described as a woman who is able to look at that future. And she is clothed in strength and dignity, sure, absolutely, but one of those internal characteristics about her that makes her so beautiful is that she's able to see all the hardship, all the tribulations. She's able to receive that and to laugh it off. Peter, writing in 1 Peter 3, says, This is how the holy women who hope, the holy women of old, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So often when we talk about having courage and facing persecution, we talk about how the men need to man up. And yet, it's important to remember that we are all called to have courage. Courage is not an exclusively male virtue. It is a virtue of everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ. All of this leads us to the inescapable fact that Paul's course, his life, was lived in order to proclaim the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. He makes this statement. He says, I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Everything he has said in verses 22 to 24 echoes what he has said in verses 18 to 21. In verse 19, he says, I served the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews. In verse 22, he says, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm not sure what's going to happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit tells me that I'm going to suffer when I get there. In verse 20, he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Here he says in verse 24, I don't count my life of any value nor as precious if only I can finish my ministry, which is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And in verse 21, he says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, he says, this is the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is repeating what he says in verses 18 to 21. 
He is repeating it line by line in verses 22 to 24. All of this is pressing us towards the inescapable conclusion that what Paul loves, what he treasures, what he prizes above everything else is not his health. It is not his health. It is not saving up a million dollars and living in retirement. It is not being wildly successful in business. It is not somehow finishing life and retiring at 62 or 67 or 71 years of age. What Paul is driven by is to continue proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ saves. He saves when we surrender to him as the Lord of our life. That ought to be our passion as well. Which means that as we consider what our goals are and what we're going to be doing and striving for, as we are approaching our annual Great Commission meeting here in February, there are always going to be obstacles and challenges which we're able to anticipate, but there will always be obstacles and challenges which we'll never be able to anticipate. The question that is before us is this, is this, are we constrained, are we bound by the Holy Spirit in our pursuit of rejoicing in Jesus Christ? So much so that whatever lies in front of us, no matter what, will continue to praise him and make him known. Eric Lydell, I'm sure you've heard the name before, is a Scottish Olympian he lived from 1902 to 1945, and he was born the son of Chinese missionaries. He's originally from Scotland. His family was from Scotland. He's a Scottish Olympian. And he went to the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. And because of his commitment to Christ, he, he was the favorite to win the 100-meter dash and the 400-meter dash. He, he was certainly guaranteed to bring home both gold medals in both of those events, but when he got to the Olympics in 1924, when he got there in Paris, he found that the 100-meter dash was scheduled to take place on a Sunday. And he withdrew. And a number of athletes and a number of his fellow Scotsmen came to him and said, look, you're, this is in the bag. You've got this. You're the hands-down favorite to win. And he said, going to church, worshiping Jesus, is more precious than winning a gold medal. And they were stunned. They pressured him and they pressured him and they pressured him, but he wouldn't give in. And he forfeit the 100-meter dash, forfeit a gold medal. He ran later in the week in the 400-meter, and of course he won that, and he brought that gold home to Scotland. They asked him about it. They said, tell us, what is it, you know, what is it like to be an Olympian? And like so many athletes today, he could have said, it's going to be great. I'm going to cash in on all these endorsement deals. I'm going to have my face plastered on a box of Wheaties cereal. Kids are going to look up to me. I'm going to live in retirement. It's going to be wonderful. I've ran hard, and I'm going to sit back and enjoy the fruits of my labor. They said, what is it like? Direct quote, it has been just a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and there has been joy in, bringing able, in being able to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have ever run. 
including the Olympic Games in Paris. And this race will end only when God gives out the medals. After competing and winning the gold medal in the Olympic Games in 1924, Eric Liddell went back to China, and he continued as a missionary there. Everybody celebrates and heralds this man because he sat out of the 100-meter dash because it happened to take place on a Sunday. What is less widely known and less widely celebrated is that he went to China and continued to preach the gospel all the way up until his death in 1945 in a Japanese internment camp. You see, when World War II broke out and the, Jap- and the Japanese empire was storming across the Pacific, Eric Liddell had the opportunity to return home to Britain. But he said, I will stay with my people. And I will keep preaching the gospel. He died at 43. He almost certainly would have lived much longer. As Eric Liddell learned running the 100 meter and the 400 meter, the goal is to stay on course, not to stay alive, and not to take it easy. And he learned this lesson from the Apostle Paul, who himself made it clear. As he's bidding his final farewells to the Ephesian elders in Miletus, here in Acts chapter 20, he says, I don't count my life of any value. I just want to finish the course. It's the same thing that he would say to Timothy eight years later. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've been in different situations and different circumstances in which I've had to confront or I've had to share or I've had to encourage. We've been there crying because someone has died. We've been there crying because someone has broken their home, broken their family through sin or faithlessness in a marriage. I can't tell you how many times I've been in these incredibly difficult situations in which I am looked to to give answers. And all I can say is you have to hope in Christ. You have to hope in the Lord. I've been ridiculed. I've been made fun of for my faith in the scriptures. I've been made fun of for my confidence in Christ and the cross and what he's done for me by his blood shed on Calvary. And all through it all, I've thought to myself, there's a day coming. And I've prayed and I've talked to the Lord and I've said, I want to see you, Lord, face to face because I've suffered so much. But none of that matters, really. None of it. Because I know that for all that we have done together, I am still a great sinner. And despite all the contributions, however great or small they may have been, I have said to the Lord time and time again, countless times in prayer, the thing that I look forward to the most is seeing you falling down at your feet. I want to see Jesus because I want to wrap my arms around his feet and I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you because I didn't deserve to be saved. I still don't deserve it today. Despite 20 years of ministry, pastoral ministry, Jesus is the greatest treasure of my life and this whole universe. 
Because we could just as easily not be here. And yet, because he has set his love upon us, we still live and breathe. And he dies for us. I want to say thank you. And I look forward to that day in which I get to see him face to face. I've prayed it a hundred times over, a thousand times over. But I want to look at him in his face, grab him by his whatever he's wearing, coat, tunic, toga, I don't know. Say, I love you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't deserve it. I still don't, and I never will. But thank you. And what Paul says is that he's looking forward to that day too. Just as much as I want to see Jesus, Paul says, Jesus wants to see me. Again, not because of anything I've done to earn it, but because he loves me. He says, I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight. Henceforth, there is now laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. Paul can claim it. He can claim it. I did what I was called to do. I followed the Lord all the way to the end. And as badly as Paul wants to see Jesus and say thank you, as badly as I want to see Jesus and say thank you, do you know what Paul touches on? Badly as you want to see the Lord. The Lord wants to see you and to give you the crown if you ran that race all the way faithful to the end. And I promise you that on that day, there will be no regrets. There will be no looking back and disappointment. There will be no heartache. And so First Baptist Church, run the race. Stay the course. It's better than staying alive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our prayer this morning is that you would work in us in such a way that we would chase hard after you. That we would not look to the approval of the world, but that we would count on persecution, that we would expect it. Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would surprise us, that we would be surprised, startled, and disturbed even when we don't get persecuted. Father, we pray that you would take us to a place where we know you are all our joy and all our treasure and that all our delight is in you. Do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise as you are able as we sing this next song. Uh, This is a new song. We're just introducing it to the church for the first time today. It's called To Live is Christ, and the lyrics go like this. Um, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The chorus is a simple one, but we pray that it would be true, and we just invite you to think and dwell on these words um, and to to, uh, trust that it is true in your own life. And if it isn't, we would just pray that you would ask the Lord to make it true of your lives. <laughs> 